I don't know if you got offended in that passage when, it's, when they pointed out that Samuel was old. He's probably not as old as you think, by the way. Uh, that's a very interesting statement. Listen, I will have one sentence, if I remember to put it in there, that will reference Samuel's age a little bit. It, it'll be maybe a little subtle, so you might miss it. You can ask me afterwards. But I want to start talking about somebody young. Joshua Harris was 21, give or take a little bit, when he wrote a book in 1997 that captivated Christian, especially conservative Christian hearts, especially dads, because it talked about courting and not dating. And it had the title, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And after about 20 years of publication, over the last two years and again a few weeks ago, Joshua Harris effectively kissed, I kissed dating goodbye, goodbye, which is a little bit of a tongue twister of English, but I promise you it is technically sound. He, he took his book and he, and he rejects it. He stepped back and as a 40-year-old, he says, I might have overran things. I still believe my objections, but I no longer embrace my conclusions, especially how they have been presented by me and others as a biblical statement as opposed to an opinion by a person. This interests me as a youth pastor for two reasons. It's played a prominent role in the lives of the Christian teens that I have served almost that entire time. Courting has taken on a new prominence during that time. Interestingly, quite often, with parents who were happy to date in their own teens, in fact, that might be why they embraced courting so much for their children. Another trend, I don't know that it is his because I don't remember him saying this, but another trend has become, as the gentleman will tell you, a frustrating statement, I am dating Jesus, as in, I will not date you because I am focused on Jesus, usually it would be said on, say, the Friday of winter camp, and by Sunday, there was somebody not named Jesus who was a dating partner. <laughs> Which, by the way, is why 1 Timothy 5 addresses that very thing all the way up to 60 years old, ladies, and says, Jesus doesn't want to date you. He's not looking forward to that rejection notice that you might give him when that cute guy walks by. That's Paul's words, not mine, so please don't get offended at me. I, I can show you that afterwards. But Jesus says, I don't want to date you. I'm your king. I don't want to date you. Yes, there's an illustration of the bride throughout Scripture, but it's a different thing, and it's a picture. It's not the actual relationship he wants with you in its entirety. So it's played a big part in our youth ministries over the time of that book, but the other reason is when he revisited that statement online, which he has been struggling with over the last two years, we happen to have been in the part of Scripture that has Samuel standing before a nation, and it was an interesting contrast between a young man in the United States today that felt a need to actually recant his book, and I would disagree that he needed to. I actually like his book even where I disagree with it. I think we have to engage our minds when we read a book and, and discriminate between ideas, discern between ideas at least. But it was an interesting contact, contrast between that 40-year-old today and Samuel standing before an entire nation, and it was simply astounding. So I applaud Harris for how he's handled 
his change in mind with that book, again, even though I'm not sure he needed to, but I am amazed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 12. So join me there in verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Who have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. Samuel says this before the entire nation. I can't imagine that. A few weeks ago when when I was up here, I can't even remember if Tiff joined me or not. I would not have had the guts to say, hey, anybody got a problem with me? State it publicly, please. Let's have a moment. That's with a couple of hundred of you. I know who would say things about me. Not all accurate, but some of it would be. I wouldn't have the guts to do that. And yet Samuel does. At the end of leading the nation of Israel during the time of the judges, Samuel stands up and says, I haven't offended anybody. That does, that's not a claim to perfection and sinlessness, by the way. He says, I haven't, I haven't done anything wrong in this role. And he challenges the nation, who have I wronged? And they respond back with nobody. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine a day on Twitter where nobody called anybody out for anything, or even one person out for anything. It doesn't exist. I'm pretty sure through the entire history of social media, there's not a day where somebody hasn't been challenged in something. And then the part I always miss when I read this is that last part, testify against me and I will restore it to you. He's not just shamelessly saying, I haven't wronged anybody. He's saying, if you call me out on it now, I'll make it right now. Most of us aren't even comfortable being that open in our own family, let alone in front of a nation. Samuel is the best judge in the history of the nation of Israel. As I mentioned just a second ago, this is the era of the judges. It's actually the end of the judges. It's the end of the downward spiritual death spiral of the nation. And it happens to land at the feet of the best judge that they have. If I'm being honest, I actually think they only had two good ones, Samuel and Deborah, because the rest of them are highly problematic. But Samuel is the best. And imagine one of our leaders saying this today, and I don't just mean our political leaders because I don't know of a single one that could say that, and if they did, I'd probably be the first one to challenge them. But imagine if our CEOs and our coaches And I just saw a video of a teacher yesterday punching a student, or college presidents, or even pastors. Imagine having a leader that would be able to say that in any role. Just your homeowner's association leader probably can't say that in their own neighborhood. But imagine if they could, and that is Samuel. He is the best judge in the history of the nation. But even the best judge couldn't say that about his own kids. 
If you know Samuel's history, and it's very subtle, it doesn't talk about it too much. But the best judge had broken kids. I might have picked up on that when I read 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9, and verses 4 and 5. It's a bit of a back flash, or flashback excuse me, to Eli's sons, the start of Samuel. He's under a priest named Eli, and Eli's sons are awful. We don't know that Samuel's sons are as bad as Eli's sons, but it's interesting that you have two good priests back to back, and their sons are no good. Christian parents, if the spiritual state of your kids has broken your heart or the mess that their sin creates has brought you to your knees, know this. The best judge who could declare innocence before an entire nation had a a family broken by sin too. This, these are the people that we see in Scripture. We tend to elevate Paul and Samuel and others to be people that we are not, and the reality is they are people just like us. And if you love God and your, fa- your, your family doesn't, your kids don't, I don't care what age they are, they might be two, and you are realizing the total depravity of man. Or they may be 50 and you might realize that this parenting thing never ends, nor does the depravity of man. Samuel is right there with you. Godly parents can have wretched kids. And all of us, no matter how godly you are, have messy kids. Because they're sinners just like us. Sometimes they learn it from us. Always. Sometimes it's their own actions quite often. But godly parents can have messy, sinful, broken kids. Take heart. You are not alone. Samuel stands with you before God and and probably prayed the same thing you have. God, what did I do wrong? And the answer might be nothing. Your, Your kids make their own choice and your kids have their own relationship with God. Your job is to direct them to him. So Samuel could stand before his nation and say, what have I done wrong? And have a messy home life. His kids weren't following God. That's at least in name why the nation rejected his sons as leaders. That's not really the reason. As you'll find out if you ever do any kind of church ministry or work with people, quite often what people say is the reason is not at all the reason that they're doing something. It's just the reason they can get away with stating to your face. Verse 7. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 12. In verse 7, Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. So we're back with Samuel speaking to the nation of Israel. It's transitioning to a king, King Saul. And Samuel points them back to what God has done. He looks at them and he says, I plead with you to remember the righteous deeds of the Lord. This God that we claim, this God that you know, pay attention and remember what he's done. And we could learn from Samuel here. A few questions for you. What has God done in your life? Just think about that. What has God done in your entire life? What has God done this week? Are you paying attention? Men's breakfast a couple weeks ago had 
uh, Al Coriel sharing what God has done in his life. Part two is coming. Those of you that missed it, catch up. Join him for, for part two. We need to be a people that share our story with each other of what God has done in our life. All too often we hide that from each other. And so we make up stories. Well, that person has perfect kids. I'm the only one that has kids that are struggling. That person, that couple, they have the best relationship. Ours is the only one that's ever a little bumpy. That person loves God. They've never had a doubt in their life. And then you talk to them and find out they were doubting yesterday. They weren't even sure they were coming to church this morning. We need to share, but as we share, we need to point back to who God is and what he's done. Don't just gripe. Don't meet at Starbucks, complain about how God isn't moving, and then move on with your life. That would be a horrible plan. First, you're not paid attention. And second, you're not encouraging each other. But do meet at Panera Bread or at Chick-fil-A, just not on a Sunday. Well, you can meet at Chick-fil-A on Sunday, too. It'll be totally private. <laughs> meet up with people and say, what has God done? How did you make it this week? Because God's amazing, and I know you're not that amazing. You couldn't have made it on your own. You might tweak that wordsmithing a little bit as you share it with your friend. You're wonderful, but God is the only way you could have made it this week. What has God done in your life? Also ask yourself, who can you tell that they might turn to Christ? If we're ambassadors, we actually have to talk about him from time to time. Who in your circle of influence can you talk about what God has done? What doors is God opening? You don't even have to work that hard. He'll do the work. Just walk through when he opens a door. Somebody says they're struggling, and instead of just saying, ah, you'll make it, Tell them how you made it through a struggle depending on God. They talk about football. That's not necessarily a natural transition, by the way. Make sure it's a door God's opening. Some of you are spectacular, though, at breaking doors open, and by all means, I don't want to discourage that. But some of us, we're awkward socially. And yet God still opens those doors. Who can you tell that might turn to Christ? Who can you celebrate the work of God with that they might join you in worshiping him? And it may not be the person you think of first. It might be the person you think of last. No way would they ever join me in church. I have been with that no way in the same room as me in high school. They walked in. I wish they'd have picked a different church, but nevertheless, I think I've shared that story before. Nevertheless, I was so thrilled that they came to Christ my high school immaturity was just, why this room? And yet I was thrilled. It was a teacher that I struggled with at St. Louis High School. I was thrilled that they could worship God with me. I never guessed that they could. But my God is bigger than my high school imagination. My God is bigger than my 40-something imagination. The last person you think of might be the first person God draws to join you in worship. So who can we tell? Now, it's important that you know the context here. You might have picked up on it in 1 Samuel 8. The nation has rejected God as king because they wanted a human king. They want to be just like everybody else, not that that's ever gotten anybody in trouble in the history of the world. Of course, as parents, we tell our, our teens that. Don't just follow the crowd. We need to model that for them, by the way, and not just follow the business crowd or the teacher crowd or the neighborhood crowd. 
The nation has rejected God as king. And this isn't the first time that the nation has rejected God. Back at Mount Sinai, they chose to hear from Moses instead of God because God's voice scared them. So then they put a layer in hearing between them and God. And now they're putting a layer of leadership between them and God. And it's not going to work out any better for them. On top of that, verse 17 makes it clear that it's an offensive request. It's ridiculous and it's sinful. Verse 17, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that they may send thunder and that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. If you're familiar with the law, this is interesting because God puts parameters for a king in the law before he's ever requested. God does this a couple places in the law where he basically says, you're going to be so sinful, you're going to do this. So I need to regulate it so that you know what it should look like in that messy, sinful request and how to proceed from there. And of course, that law got ignored. The first job of the king, I know I've mentioned this before, the first job of the king was to write his own copy of the law. It ought to change how you act. It also means that you should never lose the law And yet we see them find the law later on in their history. Every king in the book of Kings, books of Kings and Chronicles, every king's first task was to write the law. How do you lose it then? Second task is to read it daily, by the way. How do you lose it? But they did. It says it's a simple request. And here's what's going to happen because of it, but also here's what that king is supposed to do. And by the way, this sinfulness of the request is something comically highlighted in 1 Samuel 10.22 when at the anointing ceremony of their king, the whole thing is derailed because Saul's hiding from them. And God has to tell them that he's hiding out in the baggage. Behold your king under there. Go find him. He's the tallest man in the nation, but he's hiding like a child. But gloriously, God is going to redeem their sinful request. Because ultimately, that request for a king becomes a very good thing, even though their request is a sinful one. Ironically, Samuel lives another 40 years throughout most of Saul's reign. So the old man almost outlives Saul's entire reign. Their best judge was better than any of their kings, but they chose the good-looking tall guy that was hiding out to lead them instead of God or instead of the judge that had done an excellent job. And by the way, before you think we're any different, just remember that our current president was a reality TV host that is dividing the nation with his tweets. The other candidate has spent decades silencing the Me Too accusations against her husband. In the last primaries, it was actually postulated that a doctor might not be intelligent enough to be president, and our younger generations are fantasizing about the glorious history of socialism. We would reject God and ask for a king, too. We do it all the time. But there's hope for Israel back in 1 Samuel 12, and it's the same hope that God's people always have. 1 Samuel 12, verse 20 through 22. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. 
You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, but it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of human leaders. God works through them. God works despite them. God works around them. God, as our prayer of confession said, dethrones them. Don't be afraid. Samuel doesn't tell them to walk away from the request of a king. I don't know that he knows, but God knows exactly where this is going. So even though the request is sinful, God proceeds with them, not just as discipline, but as part of his redemptive plan made before the world was made. Because God redeems. Don't be afraid, but don't chase after empty things. Don't be misled in this. Our hope is not in judges or kings or presidents or Congress or courts or weapons or politics or anything but God. It isn't in voting or freedoms. It is in Christ the King. Our hope is in this. The Lord will not forsake his people ever. That is our hope. And the best judge found hope in our God. So the best judge prayed. 1 Samuel 12, 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Samuel's taking a back role now, but he promises to continue leading the people to God's word and teaching them, and he promises to pray. In fact, he says, I won't sin against God by failing to pray. Talk about perspective. Instead of clinging to his position, 1 Samuel 8 shows that he does struggle with that some, but instead of clinging to his power position, he clings to God and prayer. One of the best moments we had at winter camp According to my staff and also my own perspective, one of the best moments we have had was a time that I was not even able to be in the chapel. When my oldest son with us for a variety of reasons, and I needed Tiffany to be in the chapel instead of watching my son in the hotel room. He was young at the time. And I was left with one thing, and I struggled with it as a youth pastor. If you ever struggle with prayer, your pastors struggle with prayer sometimes too. We had plenty of guys' staff. We only had a couple girls' staff. And the girls always need more, want more. Let's go with want instead of need. Want to stay behind and talk more than the guys do. The guys are like, I talked to God, I'm out. Let's go. And the girls are like, ah, oh, I didn't even make a decision tonight, but I would love to talk to one of the counselors. So I had to make the decision to send Tiffany while I went to the hotel room, the lodge room that I was staying at with my son. And I prayed. The whole chapel. And I knew it was going to go afterwards because it was decision night, so I just kept praying. I had a list of our kids, and I prayed through it. And when I got done, I prayed through it. My son was sleeping, so I didn't have to be dad in that moment. I just had to be present. And so I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And Samuel gets it. I don't have to be your leader to lead this nation. I will go to God in prayer because he leads this nation. 
He gets it. What amazing perspective. And also, by the way, what amazing conviction. We are a praying church, and I hope you know that. I sometimes get offended when people challenge that. They usually mean, like, we don't have this particular prayer opportunity, but we are a praying church. And none of us would say that we couldn't still pray more. That's the reality of being a Christian. No matter how much you're praying, you can still pray more. And Samuel gets it. And it's convicting. As a leader, it's convicting because I look at all the times I didn't pray for my students or my kids or the one of you that I'm in a fight with at the moment because we're people and we're sinful. And we could still pray more. Even if we're praying all the time about those things, we could still pray more. That's a very convicting moment as a leader. Imagine if your leaders were praying for you, and I don't mean pastors right now. They are. I mean your teachers. I love, by the way, the number of public school teachers we have that I know are praying for our students in our campuses. So those of you that are on public campuses, keep praying for them. I see the impact. I know you see other parts of the impact of not praying. But I see the impact of your prayers in our kids and on the campuses that I walk onto. But Samuel prayed. And it is a challenge to us, that conviction. He didn't mean to, but a little bit of a gauntlet is thrown down. In fact, right now, let's pause and pray. I'm going to give you two things to pray for. Well, two sets of things to pray for. First, on your own or with somebody you're sitting next to. Pray for hope and grace and repentance. Right now. I'll tell the other one in a second. Quietly, you can pray softly out loud if you want to. Right now, let's pray. You can keep praying, but I'm going to give you a second thing to pray for. I've been praying this for months as I drive in and as I stand in the back at the tech booth during the first part of the service. Pray that God would fill our parking lot and our pews with people that need grace and that celebrate grace. Just look around. We have a, a, a well-attended service. I'm not trying to point anything negative out, but look around at how many opportunities are sitting next to you because it's not packed. It's well attended, but it's not packed. Pray for God to fill the seat next to you. I'm going to give you a tough one. Pray for God to fill the seat that you're sitting in so next week when you show up, you have to go through that little heart moment where you're like, you're in my seat. And you've got to go find a different seat. And you're not sure you like it because it's different. Pray for the parking spot that you park in. Pray that God would fill it so that next week when you show up, you have to go even, I don't even remember if it's farther or further, it's distance, farther, even farther out into the parking lot. I have to walk another 20 feet. I don't know if I'll make it. It's so hard. I realize some of you physically it is hard. That's why we have some parking spots closer. I'm not trying to make fun of that. Most of us can walk a little more. If you have to park at the back of the parking lot where there's not even stalls, you're just parked alongside the curb and you don't know whether to go parallel or diagonal or like nose into it, what an awesome problem that would be to have. 
And it isn't that grace has more people coming, it's that more people are meeting Christ. That's what we want, so let's pray for it right now. Pray that God would fill that pew, would fill that parking stall, maybe even make your moment a little uncomfortable because somebody's in your way. Let's pray. Samuel finishes his speech with a reminder to fear the Lord and a warning. Verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And here's the sad reality. We know that they failed. They didn't fear the Lord, just like us. They struggled. Unlike us, they struggled in some ways you probably never will. Some of them you very much do. Some of them you won't. I don't think most of you are going to turn to actual idol worship on the hills surrounding Santa Maria. They did. They did. We're not better than them, but you probably won't do that. I'm pretty confident. At least the people in the room right now, the majority of you are not going to build an altar up there. If one of you already has, shame on you, take it down. And grace, by the way. I just shamed you publicly. So grace, I'll do both. The job of a prophet. Shame on you, but come back to grace. Okay? We know they failed. We know they didn't fear the Lord. Neither the kings nor the people consistently followed God. It's not like they had bad kings and good people. The king... And the people were matched up perfectly on Match.com for kings in the Old Testament. It was a perfect pairing almost all the time. Instead, they pursued false gods and idols, and they sinned, and they broke the Ten Commandments, and they continued to want to be just like everybody around them. They were like our teenagers. And if we're honest as parents, they were like us. Because as parents, we're not that different from our teens sometimes. And what I'm learning about you wonderful, older, mature, experienced people, you're not that different either. You want to be just like the person a couple blocks over. We see their cars or their house or their stuff or the way they live or their relationship. And just like the nation of Israel, we reject God's kingship in our life and we wander a little bit. And by the way, God disciplined them. First the northern kingdom and then the southern remnant are disciplined and they're sent to exile not because God rejected them, but because God punishes them and calls them back to grace, which is our blessing. God redeems. And we have to remember, not just their wretched history, but the entire story of the Bible is about God's redemptive plan woven throughout the messiness of our sin. And so Exodus leads to Rahab. In the era of the judges, Rahab's family leads to Ruth, and Ruth leads to King David, and David's sin with Bathsheba leads to Solomon, and Solomon actually leads to a couple good kings like Hezekiah. A little bit messy. And Hezekiah leads to my personal favorite, the child king Josiah, who finds the law and leads a messy nation back to repentance, but really it's only Josiah and a handful of others 
that are following God at that point. And so they're sent into exile. But all of this is a redeemed moment because the kings lead to Jesus. That awful, sinful request, God redeems, and it was the plan before anything was made because the request for a king instead of God as king leads to King Jesus, God as king. And the best judge, no matter how good Samuel was, the best judge can't compare to Christ the king. He can't. There's nothing about Samuel's life that is as good as Jesus' life. If Samuel is the best the nation of Israel ever has, we are still doomed in sin. And the best judge can't compare to Christ the king. Sometimes it's difficult to figure out what to do with historical narratives when we read them. Many have allegorized them, so David versus Goliath means that God will conquer the giants in your life. Some dismiss them as old and irrelevant. They don't matter to us, or it's just a cute story. Many times we sanitize them and we overlook the messiness of David and Gideon, or we dismiss the awkward faith of Solomon and Samson. It's tempting to equate the nation of Israel with our nation, a horrible thing, almost every single time, or every single time. None of those are good approaches to Scripture. But here's what we can do. We can look for God in each account, and we can learn about him, especially as he interacts with his people and with the broken and messiness of their lives, and we can carefully be challenged from each moment. So think about it. How can you celebrate what God has done in your life with those around you? at home, at work, in your hobbies, as you go about your days. Who should you be praying for like Samuel prayed for his nation? They exist in your life. Continue praying for them. And how does our desire to fit our culture undermine our relationship with God? We are not a perfect culture Our current moment should have proven that to you many times over by now. And above all, when you're tempted to turn to the perfect political platform or argue over the next congressional representative or find comfort in the passing of another community-saving law, make sure you remember that nothing compares to Christ our King. Nothing. Let's pray. Lord, you are perfect and you stand alone. There is nobody like you. There is no one with your power, no one with your grace, no one that should be king in our lives. And yet, Lord, the biggest challenger, of course, is our very selves. We want to be king of our life. Lord, break us of that, no matter how painful, break us of that. That we would gaze at you as king and enjoy it. That you would show us your grace and there would be nothing we would want more. And that our relationships with you and others would be transformed because of your greatness and because of your grace. Lord, we thank you that for the forgiveness that we, that we know at your hands, that we take for granted, that we push aside. And we thank you that you will never let go of us, your people, 
for your great name's sake. And for our goodness, you have shown us grace. And we praise you for it today. Amen.